We're in the second, second to last week in the Apostles' Creed. I've loved this series. Uh, I've got some questions from communication cards. I want to take next week to answer those questions. Thank you for sending some questions that you have about this study. Uh, This is the second to last week that we're in this, and we're going to walk through a very familiar topic, a very familiar phrase to those of faith. We're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins. That rhetoric is very, very familiar with us, but I would say this, but we probably get a little too familiar with it. When we become too familiar with something, it begins to lose its luster, it begins to lose its grandness, we sort of begin to appreciate it less, and I wonder if forgiveness for our sins might be something that we've just kind of lost our marvel towards. And so, uh, we have, over the years, hosted a, a number of exchange students in our house. One of the things that has always stuck out to me was I was driving down Interstate 1, and one of our exchange students was just marveling at the corn and the beans. They were just struck by these fields, and, and they, she was just, these are everywhere? They're so beautiful. She was stark, struck by the stark beauty of those endless rows that hit the horizon. Now, my reaction to corn is like a little less than that, right? I don't know about you. I apologize if you're a farmer in here. I'm not trying to, but you know, I mean, you, you take them down every October. So what do you, you destroy them. I don't, I don't know. What. But you know what? If you put me next to mountains, if you put me next to the ocean, like that's wonder. Like I just marvel at those creations. Do you ever wonder if people in like California or Colorado, do they ever just look at the mountains and are underwhelmed? Do they just ever become part of the scene? Do they just become cornfields? You know, there's a saying within our culture that familiarity breeds contentment. But I think that familiarity produces lack of gratitude. Lack of gratitude. And so that's really the pervasive thought in what we're doing today and in and, and the way that we're going to head is that forgiveness is, is so great, and, and we don't give it the gratitude that it deserves. And so we'll start by looking at Jesus here. In the midst of the Last Supper, Jesus is with his disciples. He's talking through what is be, to be the first communion around his sacrifice. And Jesus says these words to his disciples, and we find them in the Gospel of Matthew 26. In chapter 26, he says this, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. It is in this moment that Jesus has redefined a new covenant with God's people. A covenant or a sacred agreement that salvation, right standing before God, that blessing and peace would come by one thing and one thing alone. And that would be Christ's blood sacrifice. His atoning work for our sins. Our relationship with God himself would be based solely upon our ability to see and look and partake in the forgiveness that God has given to us through his son Christ on the cross. But yet today there is this ongoing conversation about how effectual and how necessary forgiveness is. There are people who consider the thought That is forgiveness even necessary? There are some that would say that the omission that one needs to be forgiven would be to be weak. That is negative to say that you need to be forgiven. They would argue that the casualties of life 
just happen in our pursuit of finding happiness. And those aren't things that need to be atoned for. They're just necessary parts of our lives, of us finding the best versions of ourselves. We live our lives with no regret. You don't need forgiveness. You need to just learn to love yourself in your most wicked and weak parts. And some see the distribution of forgiveness as this sort of divine get-out-of-jail-free card. That one, accepting Jesus Christ, died for my sins, and gives me personal forgiveness. That In that, I, I just get to go to heaven. I get heaven now. And outside of my own personal benefit, the fact that Jesus died so that I could be forgiven has no practical application in my life whatsoever. It doesn't influence how willing I will be to forgive others despite how desperately and personally I need to be forgiven. And there are others who may sit here today that, that have come to think uh, thoughts around the area of forgiveness to, to say, like, there's no way that God could ever forgive me. Like, if God really knew who I was, if he knew what I did, if he knew what I was about, if he knew how long I struggled with this, God would never forgive this. He could never forgive me. The truth is, I think that we find ourselves way too familiar with the forgiveness of sins. And it's cost us our wonder, it's cost us our gratitude, and it's cost us our understanding of how desperately we need it. We need our sins to be forgiven. And so my hope today is that God would move through his word, that he would stir up new affections and awe for us, that we would become a people that would pray that God would focus me on marveling at his love and his forgiveness, and that I would be shocked by how gracious God has been to me and live in light of his forgiveness. And so we're going to start today by talking about the most fundamental problem in our life. Uh, there are three places that we want to go today. We want to talk about this topic of sin. And I try not to say that in my most Southern Baptist voice, but it just comes out that way. So sorry. We're going to talk about sin, what it is, how God has dealt with it, and then how we receive forgiveness. And so let's start today by dealing with our most fundamental problem, humanity's most fundamental problem. Because if we don't get the problem right, we will never read scripture the way it needs to be read. The problem of the world that scripture says is sin. Sin is the problem. Paul writes this in the great book of Ephesians. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we have all lived, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul writes here that we are by nature children of wrath, born dead in trespasses, and Jesus is indicating right here in Matthew 26, 28 that we just read, why did he have to come into the world? Sins, for our sins. His, his work had to deal with our sins. In God's mercy, if love and grace were ever going to be given to us, it had to be given in a way that dealt with our sin. So let's not be deceived. Sin is the problem. Sin is my problem. Sin is your problem. Our greatest problem, our greatest problem is not a 
obedience, it's not self-discipline, it's not better motivation, it's not better people in your life, it's not a better job, it's not greater wisdom. Your problem isn't that you have too many stupid people in your life. Your problem is not the government, it's not you having a body that you want to be changed, it's not your neighbor, it's not your wife, it's not your husband, it's not your sister, it's not your brother. Your problem is not that you don't have enough money. Your most fundamental problem is that you're not popular enough. Our fundamental problem is sin. Sin is the problem. And so I want to walk through a couple pictures that the Bible gives us about sin. And we'll start in 1 John. We were in 1 John several months ago. John, in his letter, says that sin is lawlessness. And what that means is God has told us how things should be done and how things should operate. And it is sin when we decide, you know what? I got a better idea. I'm gonna do this my way. That is the essence of sin. Deciding that though God said to do it this way, I'm gonna do it this way. I'm gonna do it how I want, I'm gonna be me. Rejecting God's way for our way, that's sin. And the Bible says that sin is rebellion. And that's the picture we see in Genesis three in the garden with Adam and Eve. They rebel against God. God says to them, everything is yours. Enjoy it. Just not that tree in the middle of the garden. You can have everything. Just don't eat that fruit. And what do Adam and Eve do? They rebel against God's command. And so sin is rebellion. And rebellion boils down to betrayal. The betrayal of the best of friends. That's how the Bible would talk about sin. It is the betrayal of the best of friends. Sin is rejecting our relationship with God for what we want to pursue. It's saying, I value, God, my time. God, I value my comfort. I value my control more than my relationship with you. God says, walk before me in integrity. But it's the sinner that says, I don't want to walk in front of you with integrity. I just want what I want. I want to do it how I want to do it. That's lawlessness. That's rebellion. And it's not just deliberately doing the things that we've come accustomed to knowing that God says, don't do this. It's not just doing the things that God says, hey, I don't want you to do that. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just choosing to lie or cheat or murder or say harmful things to people, those things that we just say, I know that God's against those things. But it's also omitting to do the things that God has said. Do these things because they're right and they're good. Do these things that the world would see my goodness. Do these things that the world would know my love. Do these things that the world would see my glory. Several weeks ago, we talked about the, the phrase in this creed that says, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And And we said that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to divide the world into two different groups, the sheep and the goats, those who love God and those who don't love God. And what he says is the difference between those groups is is one group sees the widow and the poor and the orphan and those in prison. And they clothe them, they care for them, they quench their thirst. And he said, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. The things that God has designed to show his goodness and mercy. And when we don't do those things, that's sinful. Sin isn't just disobeying the Ten Commandments. Sin is a transgression against God in both things that we do and things that we don't do. 
God has a purpose, he has a design, he has a way for his creation to live. And it's more than just a list. He has a design on how we are to be in relationship with each other. He has a design how we are to take care of each other. He has a design in how we are to present ourselves in public. He has a design in how we are to deal with unbelievers. He has a design in how we are to take care of this, what he says, the temple of God. And anytime we don't trust God's wisdom in those areas, the Bible says that that would be sin. We have not loved God with our heart, soul, and mind. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his letter in, the chap- in chapter 4, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And look, this is heavy, and it should be heavy, because the heaviness of sin should reveal the excre- excre- increasing grandeur and levels of which God has forgiven us. When we read God's word, when we grow in our affection for him, when we come to love his heart and his design and his desire for creation, when we read that and we know it and we don't do right by it, that is sin. And sin always makes us this promise that it's going to make our life better. Sin lives in the moment. We've said this. Sin lives in our momentary decisions that I'm going to choose that over God. God's wisdom always has transformation in mind. God's Wisdom always has longevity in mind. Sin is anytime we don't trust that. We know that sin doesn't make us more human. Sin actually dehumanizes us. We don't become more human. We've heard the saying that to err is human, to forgive is divine. No, to err is not human. To err is to be fallen. Sinning more does not make you more human. Sin leads to uncleanliness. Sin leads to alienation and destruction. Consider this. Like when you do something against one of your friends, if you in your family have harmed somebody, you've said some hurtful things, you've sinned against them, do you not find it to be a little awkward to be around them the next time? Do you not try to avoid them a little bit? Do you just not get a little weird, not respond to their email? Why is that? Because sin has alienated that relationship. It's brought anxiety into that relationship. That inner turmoil over the consequences of sin, that is the problem. And so anytime that somebody might want to tell you that sin isn't the problem and Jesus' center, his message is not about the forgiveness of sin, be bold enough and love them enough to point out the error of their way. The center of the ministry of Christ and what he is explaining in the need of his death in his life, his coming into the world is for the forgiveness of my sins, your sins, our sins. He says, my blood is shed and it will be shed for your forgiveness. Sin is the problem. Now what's the solution to that problem? Well, it's a surprising solution. It is a surprising solution. It is the most surprising news in all of the world that there is forgiveness with God. That God has provided forgiveness as an answer to our sin problem through Jesus Christ. He confirms it here in this new covenant in Matthew 26, 28. But forgiveness is not what we naturally would expect. Forgiveness is not what you naturally want to give. If we were in the garden with Adam and we saw that he sinned, 
None of us would go up to Adam and say, you know what, Adam? I think it's okay. Just go ask God if he'll, put, uh, he'll punish your, his only son for you. Just go ask him. No, every one of us would understand that God is just to rain down judgment on Adam. If you and I were in a courtroom, and in that courtroom was a woman who lost her son, and she's at the trial of the man who killed her son, and he's guilty and everyone knows it, and the jury convicts him, our heart would be more than okay with a judge throwing the book at that man. Do you know what would surprise us, what would shock us? That woman leaned over the railing and hugged the man that killed her son and said, I forgive you. Forgiveness is shocking, utter nonsense, cold water to our soul. This is God's response to us. So what is forgiveness? What is it? It's a pardon amongst people. It's taking back into friendship those who went against you, hurt you, and put themselves in the wrong with you. When we read the word of God, when we come to love God more and more and get to know his character, his integrity, and his holiness, it should lend us to realize just how short we are of it. And not only that, you feel the wake of sin in your life. I don't need to tell you that we're sinful and broken. You know it. And in seeing of how sinful we are, we should be overwhelmed, overwhelmed that God would forgive me. Think of myself or yourself in the things that you won't forgive in your life. And then think of God who says you, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is not dependent on us. It's not based upon our deserving it. It's not about us repenting hard enough to earn it. It's based squarely upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. God forgives us not because of us, but because of Jesus. And that's why Jesus' forgiveness is forever. When I was at Ball State, I remember the street preacher talking to me, and he said that he hadn't sinned in 30 years. I was like, I think you're sinning by just saying that. I was, I was not in a position to be of any thought. <laughs> Who in here can say that I've encouraged each other perfectly, as the Bible calls me to? Who in here can say that I've cared for my body as God's temple the way he, want me, he would want me to? Who can say that they've seen a stranger and felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit to do something right and good for that person and obeyed it perfectly? Who in here can say that every word that I've ever spoken was edifying to somebody? The answer is none of us. Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What Paul is not saying here is that God gave us a list, a bunch of rules, a bunch of laws, a design that should produce more sin, and we should keep sinning that we would have more grace. See, more sin, more grace, we just keep doing it. What Paul means is that the law, God's heart and desire for creation, should push us on us away that we realize just how utterly unwise and unable we are, just how much God has really loved us, and just how necessary it is that I have grace, the law educates me, and just how fallen I am, and how necessary grace is. Look, repentance is far less about my ability to point out every sin in my life and apologize for it. We should repent when we know that we've sinned, but rather, it's more about repenting 
of my life and my wisdom daily that I've fallen short of God's standard. Repentance should be a life that is shocked by God's forgiveness. And all my life wants to do is show gratitude and dependency on the God that gave it. That's repentance. God, I don't know where to start. I don't have that capability, but you're wise and you're holy and you're infinitely loving me. You show me how. And then you would say, how do I get that? Because I want forgiveness. How do I get forgiveness? Well, the Bible's answer is clear. It's faith. You get forgiveness by faith. You look past yourself and you look to Christ. You look away from yourself and you look to Christ. You take your sins seriously and you look to Christ. You make no excuses for your sin and you look to Christ. There's that foreshadowing story in the book of Numbers when God's people are wandering in the desert that would foreshadow the work that Jesus was going to do on the cross. In Numbers 21, starting in verse 4, it says, from Mount Hor, they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people because became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent a fiery, fiery serpent among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray that to God that he would take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bidden, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. In our Gospels, in our New Testament, in John 3, Jesus is speaking to a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a very renowned Jewish leader. And knowing Nicodemus in his understanding of Scripture, Jesus speaks of himself. Jesus speaks of himself this way in John 3. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that he must become that serpent. What is the serpent symbolic of in Scripture? It's symbolic of sin. Jesus is saying that I must become sin and be lifted up. That is fascinating. When you remember the verse in 2 Corinthians, it says, For our sake that God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus will take our sin. Jesus will take our venom. He will become the snake. And our response is this. Get your eyes off yourself and look to him. Get your mind off yourself. It's killing you. And look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at his wisdom Look at his love. Get your eyes off of you. Get your minds off of you and look to Jesus. Look at his grace. Look at his mercy. Look at his sacrifice. Look at his hands. Look at him on the cross. Look at him resurrected. See his wisdom. See his love. And you keep your eyes there. Keep your eyes there. Look to Jesus. Some of us want to go the, the way of denial we like to pretend that we don't need forgiveness. And it's really, it's, honestly, it's, it's not uncommon. I mean, our jails and prisons are filled with 98% of people who are innocent. 
It's always somebody else's fault. It's not my problem. We all want to protect ourselves. But listen, you don't have to look in prisons to see that behavior. It's in you and me. We want to self-preserve. Sometimes it's harder to be forgiven than it is to give forgiveness to somebody. But to, to be forgiven, I have to admit that I need forgiveness. And so we often cope with our sin by denial. And then there's another group of people who, who, who take our sin and we try to work through it with our works. God, if you'll just give me this, if you do this for me, then I'll go to church for the rest of my life. Lord, I'm going to cut a deal with you. I'm going to do this, and then you do this. I'll give you money. Uh, I'll give it to charity. As if we could fix things with money. As if we could fix things with momentarily being good or just being a good person. Both of those courses are self-justifying. They're self-atoning. They don't work. You have to look away from yourself because you are the problem. I am the problem. That's the hard thing about sin is it doesn't want to let us look away from ourselves and admit, I am the problem. And the problem does not have the solution within themselves. I have to look away from the problem and to the solution. I have to look to Christ. I have to look to Jesus. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. You sit on me what was yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might be righteous. That's how you receive forgiveness. You look away from yourself you stop making excuses, and you look to God. And so what can keep us from forgiveness? One of the areas that keeps us from forgiveness is this idea of familiarity. We've become so familiar with this term of forgiveness of sins that we just take it for granted. We just assume that, hey, God's going to forgive it. And in a, we prove to not understand the seriousness of sin. And it proves to show that we really don't want forgiveness. What we really want is to do what we want to do and then God have some time to sprinkle some magic pixie dust on it and make everything okay. We assume that we're going to have forgiveness. The other thing that keeps us from forgiveness is denying it. Denying that we need it. That I'm basically a good person. God accepts good people. God accepts everybody. Denying that you need it keeps you from forgiveness. Trusting in your work, that will keep you from his forgiveness. Because forgiveness isn't based upon you, it's based upon Jesus. And so when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we mean that our glorious God, at the cost of his son on the cross, purchased for us a just righteousness of sin that we obtain by recognizing the Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith. Looking away from ourselves... And looking to him. Today, that is simply what I want you to remember. Just look to him. Get your eyes off of you. Get your mind off of you. He's better, smarter, more beautiful, and worthy. His love for you is abundant in his forgiveness. Let's pray together. Oh God, we acknowledge that we're sinners. Oh. We work hard not to acknowledge that because it's embarrassing, it's humiliating. Uh, but God, the first step to glory, the first step 
to wholeness and transformation is that we could see it and seek its remedy. And so God, will you just show us our need and show us that remedy is not in us. Show us the Savior. Show us his perfection. Show us his cross. Show us his love. Show us his promises. Show us his call. Show us his calms, claims, and Lord, drive us to him. Draw us to him. And Lord, when you've brought us there, God, will you assure us of your pardon? And will you make us into merciful, giving people? Because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And we offer this prayer in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.